God made man. Man makes machines. And then, the machines remake man. In this mini-series, we explore the ways in which our technology shapes our minds, our habits, and our hearts. What does our technology promise us? What does it cost us? What is it doing for us? What is it doing to us? And where do we go from here? Welcome to Man vs. Machine. Welcome to the second episode of Man vs. Machine. We're glad that you've decided to tune in for this one. This is going to be an interesting conversation. We recently did a podcast, maybe you've already listened to it by now, in the Book Nook series on the book Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. And so today in Man vs. Machine, we're going to look and explore the idea of modern monsters. Okay. Yeah, the things that go bump in the night for the 21st century Yes, human. Yes, but I would say the things um, that maybe we don't know to be, a scared of, to, to be scared of, but that we are scared of, or the things that we sort of look at as being so big and beyond our comprehension yeah. that they're necessarily scary. Um, I mean, maybe there's two kinds of monsters there, but let me start with a question, okay? So if, if, if you had it within your power... To invent invisibility for mankind, would you invent it and produce it? Whatever form that may take. A spray bottle, like in the old, <laughs> you know, Disney, uh, Nyseum, Now You Don't, with Kurt Russell, or, or uh, invisibility cloak, like in Harry Potter, or whatever you know, whatever you want to, or or a small piece of jewelry that you can put around your jewelry, finger, right? That makes you disappear. If you could create invisibility, um, would you produce it for mankind to use? Why or why not? Well, those cloaks exist. You know that, right? You're talking about the ones that obscure light. Yeah, and the military has something for their tanks and stuff like that as well. That of. Read about yeah. it's it's close yeah. to invisibility. It doesn't it's not quite. It's it's not like you would you could walk up to it and not see it if you looked for it. But it it would obscure it from certain kinds of sensors and invisible you know long range stuff. I would assume, but uh, I will say, I will say uh, yes because I don't want the Ruskies to have it. <laughs> um, I I would. Um, be very reluctant. I th- weirdly enough, I'm, I'm I'm a little shocked that you started off with a con- with a discussion about invisibility because in preparing for this podcast today, I came in with kind of the view that there are some of the scariest things that we're dealing with right now happen are scary, get away with what they're doing almost entirely because of their invisibility, and so um, I. I think invisibility plays to the worst instincts of fallen human beings. Um, and um, I don't think any good will come from it. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree. I think, it, I think invisibility is an illusion, uh, first and foremost, because we know and Scripture teaches that there's a God who sees all things, sees even the things done in secret. And so man's pursuit of invisibility is sort of the final frontier of anonymity. Like we've created a society and a way of thinking about things in which God doesn't factor in, but we still have each other to factor in. Um, and so invisibility in some ways is sort of like the last frontier of, of avoiding accountability uh, or responsibility for our actions, I think. And so, yeah. and so, yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't think if I had the power, if I was alone in knowing how to do this. And I knew that I was yeah. alone, right? So, Kyle, your idea about the Russians getting invisibility first. Yeah, listen. Right? <laughs> um, but but if, I, if I knew that I was the only one who could do it, I don't think that I would do it or should do it. Now, hmm. so that, that kind of begs the question, though, it would just be a form of technology, right? Like, invisibility is amoral, isn't it? Yeah, it's just you a could tech. You could use invisibility for like really awesome surprise birthday parties. <laughs> yeah, you could use invisibility <laughs> to. Um, I'd do it. 
You do it. Oh yeah. You could you could have like the ability to make like stunts in movies because you have all the guys that are like holding the guys who spins in the air, but they're I mean, invisible. It, it would be great for the military because if as long so long as you're the good guy, you yeah. could save a lot of soldiers' lives if they were invisible. Yeah, I, I'd want to do it just to sneak onto like national TV when the president's speaking, like pulling his ear while he's talking to the country. <laughs> <laughs> you would use like, it to prank just people. Just play pranks on people. Yeah. 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 Slap him, but you know, yeah. he can't do it. Right. I, I amend my statement. I would only give it to Van. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would invent it, but I would give the only. one device to Van. The one yeah. device. Yeah, so so I, I, I think the point here is kind of obvious, and it's the yeah. idea that just because a thing can be done... And it, because a technology can exist, it doesn't necessarily follow that it therefore should be pursued. That that's a form of yeah. technology or human creation that we ought to do because we can. And so, so the fly in that ointment, though, is that invisibility um, can't be done. Well, no, no, and that's not. I mean, the, I'm, is that somebody's going to do it? Exactly. Um, and whether or not we think. It's a moral thing to do. Somebody's going to do it. Do you think, Keith, that every technology that's that we can imagine we will eventually create? Um, or do you think there are some that we can imagine that we won't? I'm haunted by uh, something God said at the Tower of Babel, uh, in which he says, uh, nothing will be impossible for them. Hmm. And, um, and so I think most of what we imagine we can do. I think what we see in the Tower of Babel is an interesting case in man creating something. We and we can call it a technology, this tower that they were building, but they were doing it in spite of God. So, not not in not consistent with God's revealed will for mankind. In fact, counter to God's revealed will for mankind, which was to spread throughout the earth and fill it with his image. Instead they were coalescing and collecting in one point and, and building a tower building to a themselves. tower to, to, to themselves, right? right? And so um and so it sort of begs the question nothing will be impossible for them impossible is one form of boundary but we've we've discussed other forms of boundaries in our frankenstein podcast that that might also factor into our decisions of whether or not to build something well i i in my own thinking and meditation i go back to the tower of babel a lot because um if you look at what god did there he didn't preclude uh invention he put speed bumps in place he put one particular speed bump in place which was to to multiply languages which inhibited sort of uniform collaboration toward unhealthy ends too bad it didn't prevent just the stealing of certain forms of technology well, but right? what's interesting is if you look at one of the big successes of artificial intelligence it is all tied to language to removing the barriers of multiple languages and to simulating human speech um, artificially. So I don't think that's an accident is all I'm saying. I mm. think, um, I don't think the people who are doing it necessarily know what they're doing or what they're reacting to, but I think, um, I don't think you can view those things in isolation of events at the Tower of So the 21st century's technological Mount Everest is to create a digital logos. You're going to have to unpack that for me a little bit. Well, the logos, the word became flesh. This Mm -hmm. idea that the logos, this language, this capacity Mm -hmm. that man has to speak as God spoke Mm -hmm. things into existence, that what we're doing there with artificial intelligence, this this sort of Mm -hmm. Mount Everest of human technological achievement in the 21st century is actually our ambitious attempt to create hmm. a digital logos. Like literally, thinking, like use words to create a being kind of idea. Yeah, oh, right. okay. I mean, you see this, I mean, if you've been following the news, have you guys listened to some of the stuff being said about chat GPT? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a little wild. Uh, it's an interesting, you ought to go play with it if you if you get a chance. I I, I don't want to get anywhere near that thing. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's interesting. There's another, so it's a, it's a chat bot that, um, is powered by an artificial intelligence model. Um, I think the GPT-3 model from OpenAI. Um, anyway, it's interesting and people are getting a big kick out of it because it can generate uh, uncannily human lengthy uh, re- re- responses to questions and 
engagement with an actual human being. And, uh, um, and truly, arguably defensible entire essays, 5,000 word essays on subjects yeah. that you can't really tell a human being didn't write. There's another related AI model out there called Dolly, D-A-L-L-E. It's an interesting model too, in that um, it actually produces images reflecting descriptive terms provided by a human being. And um, um, yeah, these are, to Ben's point about uh, a logos, uh, these are uh, the computational power underlying these models is immense uh, outside the realm of affordability for normal human beings. But um, I think they're devoted to the whole question of communication. And if we're talking about monsters, to me, the thing that scares me about that form of technology is its capacity to create false realities or un- unrealities. Yeah, I totally believe. It's just it, the the danger is in deception. So sure. one of the things I was listening to about Chat B- GPT was that all it is, from what I understand, and Keith can correct correct my Neanderthal understanding of some of these high forms of technology, but is all it is is just uh, an algorithm that's just sort of gathering as much data on human words as possible, and then basically just a really sophisticated predictive text. It's just sort of going, what's the most likely word to come after this? Something to that effect. Yeah, it, that's that's not a bad description. I mean, I did a talk here at Lake Ridge uh, a month or two ago about some of this stuff. And um, in reality, it's just statistics. At the end of the day, yeah. machine learning and AI is just statistics. But it's statistics at a scale and at a volume and at a level of, of uh, breadth of data that's never been achievable before. We've kind of reached a tipping point in which we can do statistics at a scale in which we can produce uncanny results merely on the basis of how much text we've ingested and observed. And and so what's amazing about that to me is, to, to your point, Ben, one of the things people have said is it actually has no ability to decipher whether what it's saying is true or false. It has no method of deciding that. All no. it does is say, what have all the other humans said at this point in in aggregate. And so it actually has no yeah, ability so to even say. But, but I will say, it, it's probably not that restrained. Because what they're saying now is that we don't, you know, humans have made these artificial intelligence systems, but we don't entirely understand how they work. And so yeah. what, we're, what we're finding is the Frankenstein phenomenon, the monster that we've made, we no longer have the ability to comprehend. Right. And so it's even surpassing in some sense uh, what human beings have said or can say. It's mm. sort of doing something of its own. Yeah, so I think there's a whole field of endeavor in artificial intelligence focused on the question of explainability. And and if you go look up AI explainability, you'll find thousands of articles um, online about this subject. And it's an unsolved problem uh, because the models are so large and complex that it's we don't have tools for unpacking all of that. But um, the w- one of the things I want to say about the, the Dolly a model which produces images from descriptions. I've played around with it a bit, and one of the things that strikes me about it, and this is interesting, and I, I suspect it's similar but less detectable with the chat GPT, and, and that is it has a better grasp of facts than of meaning. Hmm. So I can get it to Sounds produce- Sounds like a lot of people. Yeah. I can get it to produce a, an, you know, a painting of a cardinal that looks like it was done by Vermeer or an impressionistic painting of a cardinal. But um, if I tell it, uh, create uh, a picture of someone looking out to sea with longing, it, it doesn't know what to do with that. I mean, it'll produce, mm. it'll sort of subset and it'll pick, put a picture of someone looking at the sea, but there's no notion of the evocative mm. meaning that you're looking for in these pictures. So it can kind of plaster things together and apply, you know, image processing filters to it, but it doesn't know anything about the meaning of what you're looking for. So you just say to this thing, uh, give me a picture of a guy making a layup and it'll. Yeah. Oh yeah. Paint it. I mean, what what, you could say, give me a picture of a guy making a layup with canary ears. Yeah. (laughs) And 
Yeah, and, and it'll, it'll generate it. It'll generate it. <laughs> now, now it may be original. It may be disappointing. <laughs> give me, give me okay. to my computer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, what, their van just ran off to his uh, laptop. Yeah. That's crazy. I'm doing um, it. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I, I think I sent Ben and his brother one that I got it to generate one time, and it was I was just thinking random things, and I, and I think I said, "Give me a uh, a a box of sushi decorated for Christmas," and it it did this whole rendering of sushi with these green and red colors and you know in a yeah. box with christmas decorations around the box and you know so is there a website you go to to do this yeah you can yeah um <laughs> van's not scared of this thing at all <laughs> yeah I, I got some ideas <laughs> so I, i'm i'm starting to worry now about sermon illustrations going forward. well and, and that's not the only like radical like technological advancement just in the last few weeks. I mean, there was, there was an announcement just a few weeks ago of that we've made huge steps in nuclear fusion. So now we're going to have lots more nuclear power <laughs> over the next however many, 10, Decade 15, 20 so. years. Yeah, arguably that's a, a wonderful thing if it oh, proves abs- up. But Sure enough, but as any advancement in power has proven yeah. itself. Humans have a great way of using that for only good reasons. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think it's harder for us to think about as humans the limits of our pursuits than it is, um, you know, what what could we possibly create? You know, the Tower of Babel was not about uh, anything other than ambition and how high can we build this building, right? Like, how yeah. big can we make it? How powerful can, can this be? I think... I think Christians have to think hard about the limits of those pursuits. And we've, we've discussed some of the limits of those pursuits, but, but there's, a, there's a philosophy, and I would call it the modern scientific philosophy, that, um, that doesn't jive with a Christian worldview in terms of what's acceptable and what's worthwhile. And so I'll, I'll, come, I'll come at you with another version of a modern monster, and it's um, some of what we're hearing about the growing evidence to suggest that the COVID-19 virus was, was actually a lab leak. And so we don't know exactly what that means. And it's not, it hasn't been proven conclusively. Some of the weird things to me are the fact that that's just be- become entirely politicized. Like you can't even bring that up without people thinking you're on one side of the political aisle or another. Right. As but, if that would be right, a political statement. Yeah. Right. But just as, as a statement of fact and finding out what actually happened, if that's the case, then what we have here is an example of people in a lab pursuing scientific knowledge and, you know, uh, applying what they called, I think what's come to be called gain of function research on other forms of disease. One of those diseases getting out and millions and millions of people dying as a result of that lab leak. And suddenly, you know, like, where's the, where's the outrage? Where, you know, to me, and I, and listen, what happened in the Catholic Church and the sexual abuse scandal is horrific. That is on par, if not worse, than what happened in the Catholic Church. And what happened in the Church of Science, if, if they pursued something that ultimately got away from them and killed millions and millions and millions of people, and they tried to cover it up, it's the worst kind of modern monster. And so there's just example after example, I guess, in my mind, of things that we're capable of doing— and that we give ourselves permission to do, you know, divorced from any concept of God and his will for human flourishing, but but should we do it? I think this is back to your original question about invisibility. I think in the case of COVID, and I think also, weirdly enough, in a related way with the internet, uh, both of these things are invisible. And it is the very invisibility. You can't see the data that's flowing across the network. You can't see the virus. You can see the effects of those things. But you can't see them, and so you can't know with sufficient, an average human being can't know with sufficient certainty what's going on. They can see these effects, but everyone can say, oh, you're just superstitious. You know, you're just, you're just uh, blaming, you know, things you can't see, and it's a boogeyman, and you're irrational. But here's, I think, um, what's happened with COVID and with the internet and the and the tension we're seeing in the culture over these things. You you made the point, Ben. You can't even bring it up without people thinking you're political. I think um, for Christians, I think we need to be thinking about the political vibe differently because I don't think uh, historical left right uh, categories are what's uh, animating all of this discussion. I think it's a 
it's a conflict between the technocratic and the humane. And I think there's an increasing divide in in Western culture, at least, and maybe even more broadly than that, between those who have a technocratic vision of the good and those who are advocating for a humane vision of the good. And these don't even fall—I think this line even goes through some Christian uh, denominations and groups where there's not clarity so I, among I Christians. Would, I would totally, 100% agree I would, I would want to tweak the word humane, because I think humanism has come to mean something other than yeah, I'm not talking what you're about talking humanism. about, right? Yeah. So, so I would say between the technocratic and the divine, Well, in, in terms of God's well, Yeah, I agree with that from a Christian perspective, but here's why, the reason I use the word humane, and I, I don't mean humanism, but I, but I think there are people who are intuiting that they need to be on the side of 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 what's humane, and by humane I mean good for human Decent beings. Decent and good for right. human beings who are not Christian. But they're they've sort of had their eyes open and realized, hey, wait a minute. You know, this technocratic vision of rule by the elites and the experts is not good for humanity. And so I'm thinking in particular people like Jordan Peterson and yep. Douglas Murray and uh you know they're quasi you know, Christians, I would say. I mean, yeah, but, they're they're sort of intuit. They have good intuitions mm-hmm. about things, but they're not Christians. Some of them are right. not Christians at all. Um, uh, Joe and Rogan. some of them, yeah, Joe Rogan, I think, mm-hmm. is an example of that. Um, so I think that this divide that's happening is not easily defined in political terms between left and right. It's the difference between those who have confidence in the. And the ability and uh, desirability of subjecting ourselves to technical experts and those who have questions about that. And the reason COVID becomes an issue is because the technocratic don't want any perception to develop that there was any mistake made by the technocratic elite. And and by technocratic, what we mean is this sort of um, blithe assumption that all scientific progress is sort of ushering in this inevitable utopia somewhere And we should down the subject road. ourselves to their authority and leadership. Right, and there's right. an authority, yeah, that we ascribe to it. So, yeah. for instance, I would actually say the same questions we were asking about the separation of church and state, we need to start asking about the separation of state and science. Hmm. Yeah. We need to start asking the same exact questions because there's been a usurpation of the proper bounds yeah. of scientists in regard to governance. So you think the difference between these two groups, those who sort of like, uh, I'm going to call it the priesthood of science, perhaps, scientisms, mm-hmm. a way we've described it before. Do you think the difference between that and what we're arguing for, a more uh, Christian view of what it means to be human, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, do you think the difference between those two groups is mainly a disagreement about what causes human flourishing or do you think it goes deeper than that i think it's i think it's so much deeper i think it's actually their conception of reality Hmm. so and this is why i say divine because even if they're humane and they're thinking but not explicitly christian they're just inconsistent they don't know yet that what they're actually saying is something divine about the natural order and so here's here's what i think I think that there's a scientific worldview that objectifies, abstractifies, and objectifies nature. Um, The objectivization of even humanity, whereas we are reduced as humans to being merely human rather than divine. And so um, what I mean by that is we are primarily just a bunch of matter mushed together. It's and, a materialistic right, view of human beings. It's a very beings. materialistic view of human beings, which results... An instrumental view, right? That's right, a very instrumental view of human beings. Christians have a different idea, and it's actually reality is our idea. And it's it's the notion that the uncreated and the created, God and what he made, are actually all bound up together. So when we're looking at reality, it's what we talk about the sacramental understanding of nature, we're, we're right. talking about God as present, actually present, not distant, not absent, but actually imminent in the things that he has made. And the, the, the crowning achievement of that is in the person of Christ, who not only existed within reality as both God and man, but defines reality for Christians. And so everything we conceive of in, 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 in the natural world and in, and in reality has to flow from a proper understanding of who Christ is, fully God and fully man. The scientific worldview is 
utterly divorced from that understanding. It has created a world in which we are purely matter. In fact, Francis Crick, who created or who discovered the DNA uh, double helix idea, right? Mm-hmm. He actually wrote that what we're going to find is that there's no such thing as a human mind. It's really just the chemicals in our brains and the synapses firing and creating the illusion of that. So what we have is not man as created in the image of God and as representative of God on earth, but man as machine. So we've argued before that science, the the discipline of science, the discipline of seeking to understand the natural world and employ it in the betterment of other humans, right, came from a Christian world, a, a Christendom, came from a Christian perspective. Where do you think it went wrong then that it becomes so antithetical? Like when did science become the enemy of the thing that created it? Two people, Augustine and, and Thomas Aquinas, okay? So if we want to get very specific and technical, Augustine created a world in which all of nature is a bunch of, it's a big pile of damnation, okay? <laughs> that's, that's essentially Augustine. It's, it's that kind of fallen reality. Thomas Aquinas took that a step further and actually said, not, not that particular idea, but created this idea that man is essentially his soul hmm. animating a body. And so what we get from that is Descartes, who made that Absolute, the dichotomy of, of the, the yes, material and the, the spiritual. The, the dualism between yeah. the material and the spiritual. So, so Christianity, in, in misapprehending its own Christology, actually planted within it the seed of its own demise in the modern world, in the scientific method, so, so or in the scientific philosophy. So you'd be saying that science, that science was a fool's errand from the beginning in that sense. It was, it's more Aristotelian necessarily than it is Christian. It's, it's rooted in a set of assumptions that are false. Yes, and science. So, yeah, and and now, so yeah. That, that doesn't mean that all of its assumptions are false, but it it's built on a foundation of misapprehension of the way the world is. It's actually an unreality, and as like like all unrealities, it is a lie, and we know actually who the father of lies is. Now, and right. this is why I think this is why I say sci- the scientific modern science as it currently exists, divorced from God, is Satan's attempt. To and I'm using this term uh, not not crassly or profanely. Advisedly, yeah, yeah, advisedly. It is Satan's attempt to bastardize man's design to steward the mm. earth. Mm-hmm. So you would so in a in a particularly diabolical way. So when they say follow the science, we're saying follow the yeah. father of lies, yeah, know, Satan himself. You know. Well, so I want to. In a sense. I want to put a qualifier on this in the sense that I do think that um, there, is a, there is an understanding of how to do science that's rooted in an acceptance of the ordered nature of the world as God created it. Right. And that as our role as stewards is to improve, to bring order, to bring fruit to uh, the nature of of our existence here. And so I think there's a scientific pursuit uh, that is entirely Christian. Yes. But I think what you're saying, Ben, is that uh, Western science is often dominated by a materialistic, dualistic set of assumptions about science yes. that are um, that are unbiblical. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so help us out then. How does a Christian know the difference between the good science and the bad science? So I, I wouldn't say there's there's necessarily such a thing as good science and bad science. I think I think that there's um, science that is, or or let's let's stop saying science because that sort of has a mystical connotation to it. There is knowledge that we possess in light of what has been revealed to us by God, and then there is knowledge that we pursue on our own ends, divorced in our own minds divorced from God entirely. Um, and so God has not merely revealed fact, he's revealed meaning. To get back to this idea of AI not being able to distinguish between fact and meaning, right? right? Yeah. God has actually revealed more than fact, he's revealed meaning. And so when Christians approach science, we're, we're not approaching flat, vacuous, you know, facts. We're, 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 we're pursuing knowledge in the light of God. We're pursuing ends that God has given us. Right, we're pursuing knowledge in the light of God. And so, for instance, healing sick children is a very Christian thing to do 
in a very Christian direction in the application of scientific knowledge. Um, pursuing gain-of-function research in deadly viruses that might or might not leak out into the public in sketchy areas of the world may or may not be a good thing for us to do. And there are a lot of scientists today who have been right. saying for a long time, stop pursuing that research. Yeah, but the people who are doing it are not asking the right questions. Right. Because they're unformed by proper ends. Right. Well, because I, I think the argument for that kind of research is that we're trying to, we're trying to prevent kids from dying of diseases. And so, and so that's where I guess I'm still trying to figure out Maybe they were. What's the may and and again, I'm I'm not arguing I'm for sure against them. That that's what they were doing. There are, but there are scientists, experts in that field who are saying, stop doing this. Absolutely. What, what, what you're doing is you're not going to learn anything we don't already know. You're creating problems. Yeah. So maybe let's go. Let's let's maybe go to a different a different arena. You know, because I don't know enough about gain of function research to maybe even have a intelligent yeah. conversation. I know enough on to it. to spell it. Yeah, <laughs> that's about it. G. Um, yeah. So, like, uh, back to the the nuclear technology thing. So, Keith and I were both having this sort of back and forth about, okay, well, we may have the ability within the next ten to fifteen years to have nuclear fusion as a viable form of energy on the planet, which, first of all, could be super beneficial to millions and millions, if not billions, of people having affordable, attainable, potentially safe energy. For people to use, and and we would all say as Christians, man, good on us for for turning the lights on in countries that may not get that for hundreds of years if we don't use this technology. On the other hand, nuclear power is synonymous in the in the human mind with our own annihilation, right? The ability to eradicate ourselves off the face of the planet. And so uh, again, I I have to ask the question: How do we know that nuclear fusion is or is not? A modern monster, should, something yeah. we should avoid. It's the Tolkien idea. It's this idea: should are there some rings that just flat ought to be destroyed? Yeah, yeah, and, and not pursued. <clears throat> um, and I think it's a, I think it's a valid question. I really yeah. do. I, I don't know if I've. I mean, I, I, well, I know for for a fact I don't have the answer. <laughs> but, um, but I, my hunch is, uh, my hunch is that there are things we should not pursue, and that might be one of them. I don't. I don't know if that's the case or not. So I. I will say that I'll make a couple of observations. I don't know that I have an answer at all. Throughout all of human history, um, the the availability of energy directly correlates with human life expectancy. Um, and the and inversely correlates with the reduction of poverty. So. To the extent that reducing poverty and increasing life expectancy are good things, um, they're not good at any cost, I don't think. But to the extent they're good things, then more abundant energy is laudable. Um, now, that doesn't mean, like when I say at any cost, that doesn't mean, you know, there's certain kinds of energies you might be able to produce that wreak havoc and destruction within certain radius. And so you don't want to do that. Uh, because the downside cost at some incremental bump in life expectancy outside the radius is not worth it. I, I don't know enough about fusion to know one way or another, but as a general principle, I think uh, multiplying the availability of energy tends toward uh, the reduction of human suffering, the increase in human life. Um, and to that end, I will just make this observation that those who are advocating for reducing available energy through for environmental reasons are actively uh costing the lives of human beings I, sure i totally I, I tend to agree with you and i think i think that you're i think everything you said is right here's what i also know on the flip side of this that we are we are not very good at at understanding uh, the ramifications of the things that we decide to do. Yeah, as, as I don't think beings. we even always know. <laughs> and, and we, we don't. Yeah. And so, like, th there's this invisible re reversal of technology upon itself. You know, we, we've talked about this before in in this series, I think, and in other series where we're just not sure how the world's going to react or how things will, will come about because because the world's a complex system and yeah. complex systems are impossible to, to predict. But, you know, here's a funny example of that. Um, wolves in Yellowstone National Park were hunted... To extinction mm -hmm. and eradicated and then all of a sudden all the grass and plants and birds that used to be there disappeared 
It's like, what in the world do the wolves have to do with the birds and the grass and the flowers and things? Yeah. Well, turns out there was no one to hunt. There was no creature there to hunt the other animals who were eating all of those fl- flowers and to grass keep them in check. that were bringing yeah. the birds to you know, the national park. And so they reintroduced wolves to the park in 1995. Okay. And it has had the most remarkable impact on on the park itself. Yeah. Um, they're controlling the elk herds. They're controlling the bison. And now all of a sudden the grasses are back. The plants are back. Yeah. The birds are back. You know. So I, so I guess my question then is, if we don't always know, and I think there's something Christian about understanding our own finitude. So uh, Psalm um, one thirty one actually has this idea of, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. That there is a there is a Christian virtue of humility to say I don't know. Domain, yeah. I don't know how far I can go with this. I don't even know what all the consequences of my actions will be. My question then is. What questions should Christians be asking of technologies that some of these technocratic, materialist, scientistic people are not asking? Like, what are the rubrics we should be applying when we hear about chat GPT? Well, yeah, so uh, not so much specific to chat GPT, but I, I think, you know, the very first thing we did in this whole podcast endeavor that we undertook to do was a series on first principles. Uh, which is what is not just what can man do, but what is man for? Um, and I think we have to start with those questions. And if we don't know what man is for, we can't understand what's for human beings good. And we can't therefore even start to evaluate the the moral properties of a given technology. So I think there are a lot of specific questions that you need to ask, but you can only ask those questions within a context of what ends you're trying to achieve. And, um, and so I think that, um, if we don't start with an understanding of what human beings are for and what their good entails, we can't, we can't properly evaluate or even begin to consider what to do with specific technologies. I I think in addition, we have to square with what human beings are. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and, and that's kind of go- going back to that idea that we're not just a lump of matter with synapses and chemicals firing in our, in our system, but we're, we're actually divine humans. We, we, are the Im- we are image bearers of the divine. Um, and that changes, I think that not only changes us, but it changes the way we view the world around us. It was also created by God. And has, there's, a, there's a sacredness to it. That the world isn't here merely to be plundered, hmm. right? But that it has its own purpose and its own design that pleases the Lord. Or just to even believe that humans aren't infinitely malleable beings, that we actually have— There is a human nature. Right, yeah. That's fixed that, and unchanging. That we can't change certain things about ourselves, and if we could, we shouldn't. <laughs> certain things about ourselves. Yeah. So, are you going to— Get the latest AI when it comes out. Are you going to buy the robot for your house and uh, gracious have it do your laundry for you? I don't even put Alexa, Amazon dots in my house. Like, ain't no way. That's basically putting the uh, the listening wall from 1984 in your living room yeah. and paying for it. <laughs> so something we've done already in our conversation is push the fear factor out there to the you know like the horizon. Okay, AI, uh, you know, whatever, nuclear fusion, it's way out there somewhere, but are there modern monsters that already are corrupting our world or our minds or undoing, uh, warring against human flourishing that we should sort of open our eyes to? Well, I told your dad last night, um, you know, Legos seem to be a good idea for kids, but when they're left out on the floor, they cripple our feet and they hurt. <laughs> they- and, you know, what started out as good intentions is really not a good invention. It's a reversal yeah. of technology, yeah. hard yeah. to bear. Yep. Totally. So, so I was going to say something about, you know, some of the technology we have. And, you know, we know that it poses some risk and, and some dangers if, we're not, if we don't use them appropriately. But anyway, last week I happened that I was just reading through some news articles before I went to bed. And I saw this one said uh, recall on washing machines. We just bought a new washer and dryer. Um, 
a few months back, and uh, the Samsung is the brand, and it's it was um, not that I was looking for this, but the set that I bought it's under their category of smart things, and so uh, they have the ability to connect to your Wi-Fi in your house. I never did any of that stuff. I didn't connect co- your washer to your Wi-Fi. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't connect any of it when I bought. It, I just had it set up. We just wash like we always did with our previous wash and dryer. And so reading this article and it says, stop using immediately because uh, washers um, have been known to uh, smoke inhalation and catch fire and stuff like that. And so I'm like, let me go check my serial number. And sure enough, mine falls in this category. But the article said, but if you get on Wi-Fi, if you, if you're not connected your machine to Wi-Fi yet, um, it'll update itself for you and uh sure enough i connected to wi-fi that night got up the next morning called samsung i just want to make sure because i wasn't going to use my washer until i knew and so the lady gets on the phone she goes oh yeah she goes it looks like it updated last night and uh we've uh, it's it's fixed your machine and you're you're good to go and ever since that i had to put the app on my phone and so i was driving home the other day and i got this alert on my phone it was showing me the wash cycle on my uh on my phone, and I could yeah. pause it right there if I wanted to, and everything. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, what I want to get no. pinged about when I'm <laughs> no. walking around. What my washing machine is up that, to. <laughs> I know. That sounds to me like Samsung said, "Hey, how do we get everybody to put their washers on Wi-Fi? Light yeah. a couple on fire, and then make everybody." So, uh, one of the ones yeah. that I I talk to people about. This is a really like mundane one now, but like uh, when I was uh, entering into college, this thing came out called uh, Snapchat. And it was, to your point about invisibility, it was an invisibility cloak for communication. It was an anonymous uh, picture message sending app that was marketed to teenagers and young adults. And it was basically a way for you to say... What could go wrong? Yeah. (laughs) Hey, you can anonymously message one another and then it immediately deletes. There was actually a, a really interesting conversation I was... I, I eavesdropped my way into, you know, as youth pastors, this is how you get into most conversations with teenagers. You eavesdrop until they just allow you in. And uh, they were talking about uh, the appropriateness of uh, boys and girls Snapchatting each other if they're in a relationship with a different person, you know, seeing another. And, and I was going, okay, that, they should probably have that conversation beforehand, but let me put it this way. Imagine you are talking to someone else's boyfriend or girlfriend, and you said, hey, listen, you can't listen to what I'm saying, and as soon as we talk, we're going to immediately delete everything we say. Now, you may be saying nothing bad, but that's suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> that's just saying, hey, we're going to make it entirely likely that we do only bad things here. Yeah. So that'd be an example to me of um, a form of communication that's just- A modern just monster. Monstrous. Yeah. So I think technology, you know, there are forms of technology that can be monstrous, but- to your earlier question, Ben, about what else? I mean, what is what other monsters are there? Um, I think there are scarier things than technology. I think technology tends to be... Um, I mean, it's in the word. It's technique. It's, it's, it's a particular application of an underlying agenda. It, which yeah. can be good or ill, but it's yeah, a technique right, sure. in and of itself. It can have negative effects, but uh, it's a technique. But I think there's something else at work in the world that's scarier and more mm-hmm. problematic. And I think it is what's animating some of this. I recently stumbled across um, an article, an online, very lengthy blog post by a guy named N.S. Lyons, who um, is a has increasingly been getting uh, kind of a hearing in a variety of interesting circles, including in places like First Things Magazine and other places. He's a very uh, insightful thinker. And this article he wrote is called A Prophecy of Evil, Tolkien, Lewis, and Technocratic Nihilism. Um, and it, It's light reading. Yeah, yeah, it's light reading. Uh, it's about a 50-page blog post, weirdly enough. But anyway, but he says something in here. He talks, he, he bases his entire essay on kind of the intersection of some of Lewis's writings, like The Abolition of Man, uh, his book, That Hideous Strength, uh, Tolkien's writings in The Lord of the Rings. Um, and, and, but one of, he basically makes the argument that there is a longstanding effort on the part of Satan to undermine any sense that there's a normal a standard of which against which everything can be judged and understood. And this gets back to our understanding of uh, what's good and human. Um, 
but he he basically says that uh, this effort to un- to pervert our understanding of the normal, um, the easiest way to do that is through the avenue of human language. And I'm going to read a quote here. He said, "Not only is language the word slash logos core to what makes us uniquely human, but it is our foremost means to discern the truth. If language is corrupted." then our ability to discern reality and the normal becomes impossible. It is therefore unsurprising that it is language that has in every age been the foremost and most natural target for perversion by the forces of subjectivism. As Lewis and Tolkien's friend and fellow inkling Owen Barfield observed in 1928, nearly two decades before Orwell made a similar argument, Barfield said this, of all devices for dragooning the human spirit, the least clumsy is to procure its abortion in the womb of language. And we should recognize, I think, that those, and their number is increasing, who are driven by the impulse to reduce the specifically human to a mechanical or animal regularity will continue to be increasingly irritated by the nature of the mother tongue and make it their point of attack. And I'll just illustrate the, the, you, you probably why wanna, this is going on right now you, by just saying, what are your pronouns? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you probably need to put that in layman speak. Yeah. So so what he's saying here is that when the way we use language is distorted and perverted, our ability to discern is eliminated. And, and, and going back earlier, he said, when those who want to reduce humanity to purely mechanical, right. sort of animalistic— The way you get there is by undermining people's ability to discern and reason. And you do that— most easily through manipulating the the meaning of words. The logos? Yeah, the logos. And so and so this is why, you know, we talk about, you know, AI's the boogeyman is scary and all this stuff, or these devices that they want to, all those things are bad enough in and of themselves, potentially. But I think what's worse is what's going on right now with an effort that you're seeing propagandized, really by trying to get everyone to play games with the meaning of pronouns, um, you see just widespread acceptance, for example, even among many Christian writers, in talking about uh, gay people who are married is referring to his husband, right? Or referring to a person as they or, you know, or them. And these are all... Uh, basically redefining our perception of reality and undermining our ability to discern. Yeah, well, and one of the ways that language can be effective in those kind of situations is just obscuring the conversation entirely, Yeah. right? If you sort of change, if you change the the norms of a conversation enough, people forget what they're talking about. <laughs> and so it's it's hard to sort of pin down what some, why you disagree with someone. Yeah, we, we eventually tend to... Im- be- start believing the language we use, oh, even for if sure. we don't start out believing it. And I think, to me, that's a scarier monster of our time than technology, is this effort to obscure our ability to think in terms of reality. Well, it's so, one uh, of the reasons well, why we as humans now describe ourselves, when we need rest, we need to recharge our batteries, right? We start thinking of ourselves mechanically. We start thinking of ourselves in analogy to machines, and then, lo and behold, we start treating ourselves like machines where we can swap out parts and we can turn ourselves into a different kind of machine if we have the right technological skill. Yeah, I, I would say, I would say, Dad, it's a little bit like, it would be a little bit like saying, what really scares me is not the rampant cough, it's the cancer. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the cough, what we're talking about in terms of the, our technological pursuits, I think all flow from the same tumor, from the same sickness, which is... A, an unreality that we've adopted as reality. Um, it's a world devoid of God and a man devoid of God. And you, you get, you get a world devoid of God only when you conceive of man as devoid from God. Um, and so I, I kind of go back to modern Western science is built on a foundation that is simply not true. That the world is so much stuff and matter and it has nothing really to do with God and can be known, 
understood and in some cases exploited without any reference to God whatsoever. Those are the ramifications of a very particular philosophy that necessarily dehumanizes man and makes him an animal, as makes him a machine. And so then, therefore, of course we have to modify the language, because it's the only way to be consistent in the philosophy we've, we've taken up. It's so critical that as believers, we insist upon using language in ways that correspond to reality. We, it, it, is, not a, it is not a minor thing. And, um, and we have had Christian leaders who have been very confused about this question. Uh, in evangelicalism in particular, but, you know, we've had leaders in evangelicalism say we need to be, we, we need to be hospitable with our pronoun use. And what they mean by that is we need to speak falsely in order to give comfort to those who would impose mm-hmm. a distorted view of reality. Or to say us. that's a means of opening the door to sharing the gospel with them. And right. Some, you know, right. Yeah. But it is so vital that we speak truthfully about the nature of reality because that is the, that is the foundation on which any ability to discern and understand any meaning at all is based. I've read about a, a, a guy that's a pastor in New York. Uh, city, and he's. I think he may have convinced his church or uh, their own board to offer weed to everybody that comes in that's that's addicted to it because they want them to feel comfortable coming in, and he's going to use that as his means of expressing acceptance and <clears throat> sharing the good news of the gospel with them. So, wow. But yeah, I mean, it's it's to your point. It's you like have a com- psychotic church. Yeah. Guys, I don't like the sound of all this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and it, it it begs the question then, okay, well, we've just said that language, or we've posited language and science, you know, the two things we probably run into most often. Um, that, that The portions of this are warring against our Christian understanding of the world. And so I guess we have to ask ourselves, what are the ways that we – what are the ways that we look at the world differently then? Like, what are the what are the methods that we fight back against those kinds of lies? If if we're if we're living in a world that's trying to dehumanize and desanctify, right? So remove the presence of God from the world. What are the ways that we put God back in? I think I think the language issue is within every Christian's reach. I don't think the science issue so much is within every Christian's reach, but I think. What's within our reach are the things that we can actually contribute to and control. We can, as believers, refuse to use language in ways that falsify reality. Um, We can just not speak. We cannot enter into the pronoun games. We cannot uh, enter into the the uh, you know presupposition that uh, gay relationships actually constitute marriage. Um, we can we can just refuse to mm-hmm. participate in the in the distorted language around all of that stuff and insist on speaking truthfully about reality. On the science front, I think it's harder because not everybody's engaged actively in science. Although we we embrace and adopt certain facets of science, I I think you know apart from you know we don't really know what's going to come with a lot of these things, whether it's fusion or or AI or whatever, but I think one of the things we do know is that distractibility siphons off mind space and focus from productive and productive things that contribute to human flourishing. So I think we can choose not to embrace things that dilute and divert our attention to dissipation and waste. Um, and so you know, I think there's just a lot of things that people are encouraged to spend their time on that, uh, and they put things in their pocket that vibrate and nudge them and poke them to draw their attention away from something that is more human. Hmm. Yeah, maybe to, maybe to Ben's point, the way we fight, we fight back on the technology front is we don't allow ourselves to be coerced or exploited or used by any technology that treats us as, what'd you say, only so much stuff. Mm-hmm. Any technology that reduces 
part of what it means to be human. And and man, I don't even know what all that may entail. But that's at least some form of rubric to start moving forward with. So here's a here's an interesting paragraph in this book I've been reading. It sort of animated a lot of my thoughts in this discussion and in other discussions on technology and science and Christianity and um and it's called the, the book is called The Rape of Man and Nature. An inquiry into the origins and consequences of modern science. Okay, I bought this on a lark at a conference we went to, and then it just so happened that it landed squarely at the bullseye of the issues we'd be thinking through in Frankenstein and technology and a lot of the stuff that we've been exploring. Anyway, here's a here's a here's a quote from the book: If we cannot see how to restore the traditional forms of a Christian society, or to be the type of man of the ages of faith. We do not because of that cease to be created in the image and likeness of God or lose our capacity to realize this image and likeness in our personal lives. We demean our own dignity when we attribute either a final character to the present scientific and technological period or regard it as fatally and necessarily leading to our own human and terrestrial deformation or extinction. It may well lead to this, but it must be repeated. If it does, this is our own responsibility. We are faced with a challenge, an issue of life or death, either to, ef- to affirm the eternal nature of our being, that image in us and the values that go with it, which lie beyond all forms of society, whatever their character, or to acquiesce in our own dehumanization and eclipse in obedience to the forces that with our cooperation have fabricated the infernal and artificial forms of the contemporary world. If, though, we choose not to acquiesce, then we must realize that the first step towards becoming disentangled from these forms is the step of repentance or metanoia, change of mind. Such a conclusion must follow from all that's been said in this. That's a whole lot of talk. That's a whole lot of word um, to try to get through. And this book was one of the hardest things I've had to read in a long time. But it was it was an important sort of paradigm-shifting um, experience for me. But I think that his word here at the end of this book is true. There has to be a kind of repentance among Christians who have, who I think are complacent in trying to fit our theologies to the scientific consensus mm. rather than um, restraining scientific endeavor by the higher realities that God has already revealed in his word. I, I, think, I think it's like we've been looking yeah. at the 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 slide the microscope through the slide instead of the slide through the microscope. Yeah, right. That's right. And we've we've given up that we actually have something to tell scientists that they can't figure out themselves. That we can actually say something to scientists about what things are for and how things ought to be that they couldn't discover to your point through their microscopes, and that even if they disagree with us, they do not corner truth. They've yeah. got they've got a very particular lens that they can find facts and things through, but at the end of the day, we've been given the revelation of God, and so we have things to tell them, authoritatively tell them that they about what it means to be human yeah. and the boundaries of inquiry, and 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 that people need to be willing to say, yeah, this is what the this this is what I'm hearing about the science, but that's not what's ultimately going to make my decision for me. That would be an abdication of your responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, so um, where do we go from here? What does repentance look like in your life when it comes to this sort of thing? And, and, and I mean, we barely scratch the surface. I mean, the right. tip of the iceberg in terms of the things that I think, if, we're, if we look at what Frankenstein was and the fact that he, as the creature, sort of became the master over his creator and the creator itself became its slave— Um, then there are many forms of enslavement that I think you can see in the modern world, forms of technology. Um, And one of the things we really want to do with uh, the last episode of our our series in Man vs. Machine is really, really unpack what lifestyle change looks like. Right, that's right. And so there's going to be a lot of discussion on that front, but I think it's appropriate at this stage to sort of go, what's that first step step of repentance? For me, I think it means refuse... To use language in any way that distorts reality, mm-hmm. that is unreflective of reality. Don't use language that way. Don't tolerate language that way. And and 
and recognize the sinister nature of the of of that proposal that language be used that way. The second thing is do not choose um, technologies in which you uh, which distract you uh, toward things that are chosen for you by someone you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, don't don't be nudged into focusing on things that are not your own choosing. I, I would piggyback off that with only a only adopting a, a technology because I know what I what I know it will do for me to become more Christianly human, so to speak. So I think a lot of a lot of us. I'm a millennial. I grew up in the in, in an explosion of technology, and so I got used to just adopting the newest technology because it was the newest technology. And you said, "Well, it can do more," but I think Christians need to much more frequently ask the question: Why would I even use this at all? It's more it's more powerful, but to what end? And so being able to answer the question to what end before I adopt anything new. Yeah, I think that's I think that's on po- on point, Kyle. I would I would add to the to the things that have been said here um, that as Christians, I think we have an obligation um, not only to only take up those technologies that sort of affirm um, what God has revealed is consistent with human flourishing. Um, but to also think better generally about who we are and what we are is revealed by God. The only way to determine what technologies contribute to human flourishing and which don't would be to really and properly understand deeply the Christian outlook on man's existence as revealed by the person of Christ, um, and then try to conform our own realities to that revelation— and and that's a, that's kind of a mouthful in and of itself. But I I, w- I would also say this: to try to disentangle my hopes from the promises science makes me, hmm. and place them more squarely on the promises of God in Scripture. Yeah, I, you know, Scripture says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, and so I think as believers we have to make a choice. I'm going to approach life through the grid, the foundation of Christ and God's Word in my life and discern things appropriately, I don't give equal weight to what's we're being bombarded with uh, to, to what the Word teaches us. And so uh, when we do that, you truly are like a wave of the sea just being blown here and there and, and uh, unstable in, in, in all that you think and, and the way that you try to function. And so um, I think that's, for me, is, is making sure that my... I'm grounded in what, in the perspective that God's word gives us, and and how to go about my thinking and decision making. I really resonated with what Keith said. I just find myself angry every time I read something that wants to um, give merit to or endorse the language. You know, his husband kind of taught. It just it just makes me uh, mad that that that's how they they want to. Um, weave that into our, our our thought processes i was filling out something the other day i can't even remember what it was for but it was just it was ridiculous it had nothing to do with what it, the whole paperwork had to do but it it wanted me to list my gender it said male female non-binary and i'm like why are we, where is this coming from you know why can't you just say male and female i mean that's what we are and uh but the, those lists are getting longer of what you might identify as and they expect you to just take that as that's just normal you know and um Alistair Begg said something the other day, you know, I was watching a, a clip of his and he said when it comes to, for example, those that are in a, a lifestyle of homosexuality or anything else, uh, along those lines, he said, I've, I, and with believers, I, I've noticed that we either um, um, uh, our response to them, I'm trying to think of the word he used, it, it's escaping me right now, but um, we revile them or we embrace them is what I've seen uh, in, in an attempt to say that we, we want, we're trying to understand you and we want to love on you uh, where you're at. And he says, but the scripture teaches us that we, we are to neither as a believer revile them uh, or affirm them, uh, but we love them in the midst of it. So don't give, don't feel obligated to say or, or do something that endorses that lifestyle in any way. And don't, 
put your arm out to to the extent that you give the impression that you hate them because scripture says God loves these people. So deal with it in a godly way, not in a way that is, um, you know, to one extreme or the other. And so I thought that was a, a good reminder of, you know, when those reactions well up within you and you read this stuff and it just feels like we're just getting hit every day with something new, uh, the way God expects us to actually deal with it uh, without compromising. And so uh, that yeah. ought to be helpful. Yeah, it's good. Know the truth, live yeah. the truth, rely yeah. on the truth. It's good. This has been a Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can join the conversation by emailing us at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.